Hiya, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, started off with the usual links I liked, uh, lots of videos, but the one I wanted to talk about was this absolutely lovely letter from John Steinbeck to Marilyn Monroe. The, tw the, yeah, the internet is um, bountiful and you get these fantastic little um, curios coming across. This one is uh, written from uh, Steinbeck to ask her for a signed autograph for his nephew John. Um, uh, and just to sort of... I have a nephew-in-law who lives in Austin, Texas, whose name is John Atkinson. He has his foot in the door of puberty, but that is only one of his problems. You are the other, John Steinbeck says to Marilyn Monroe. I know that you are not made of celestial ether, but he doesn't. A suggestion that you have normal functions would shock him deeply, and I'm not going to be the one to tell him. On a recent trip to Texas, my wife made the fatal error of telling John that I had met you. He doesn't really believe it, but his respect for me has gone up even for lying about it. Now, I get asked for all kinds of silly favours, so I have no hesitation in asking one of you. Would you send him, uh, in my care, a picture of yourself, perhaps in pensive, girlish mood, inscribed to him by name, and indicating that you are aware of his existence. He is already your slave. This would make him mine. If you will do this, I will send you a guest key to the ladies' entrance of Fort Knox, and furthermore, I will like you very much. What a gorgeous note. Now, um, the tragedy is that the internet also tells you that John never got anything from Marilyn Monroe, which is um, a real shame, because you don't get much better letters than that. Anyway, that was a nice way to start the week. Second post of the week was from a friend of mine called Roman Krasnarich, who is a public philosopher. I think he's the only person I know who is a public philosopher. It sounds terribly exciting. Uh, and political scientist. And this is about his latest book, uh, called, I think based on his PhD research, What the Rich Don't Tell the Poor, Conversations with Guatemalan Oligarchs. So Roman says that, you know, we need to understand elites if we want to challenge and influence them. And so, and the way to do that is to talk to them. And this is what he did in Guatemala, which is like one of the most oligarchic places I've ever come across. So from the Russian oligarchs behind Putin to the digital oligarchs in Silicon Valley, the world's economic elites have been growing in affluence and power. If we really want to challenge fundamental global inequalities, it is essential that we develop a deeper understanding of oligarchs worldwide. Doing so offers vital strategic levers for confronting their power and privilege and for developing effective movements for change. But how much do we really know about what makes them tick? In the early 2000s, uh, I embarked on a seven-year investigation, yeah, that sounds like a PhD, to find out. The results of what I learned appear in my new book, What the Rich Don't Tell the Poor, in which members of Guatemala's economic elite speak candidly in their own words on issues ranging from political violence and civil war to race, poverty and power. <clears throat> And I just, it was through such encounters, he basically had to put, put on a suit and hang out with some fairly unpleasant people in the middle of, a, you know, in the, you know, soon after the end of a very nasty civil war in which 200,000 mostly indigenous Mayans were killed. Um, along the way, I met people like the aristocratic businessman Manuel Ayao Cordon, who has since died. He passed me his business card as we sat in his office in Guatemala City, jokingly explaining how a foreign diplomat recently accused him in public of being an arch-typical far-right Latin libertarian oligarch. Just for fun, he said, he had some business cards printed displaying this title. 
He then told me in all seriousness, I am leader of what they would call the ideological right. And sure enough, um, we have a picture of the uh, business card in question on the blog. It was through such encounters that I tried to understand the worldview of the oligarchs, their motives, fears, hopes and vulnerabilities. While I recognise that every country and context is unique, I hope that what I learned in Guatemala may be of use to activists, researchers and change makers in both the global north and south who are committed to eroding the power of economic elites. Here are three broad insights I gained. The first is that the oligarchy's power is partly based on hollow threats. Economic elites often use the threat of capital flight to prevent governments from imposing higher taxes or other limits on their wealth. I discovered that, at least in the case of Guatemala, this is frequently an empty threat. Several business leaders I spoke with admitted that they had managed to thwart attempts to increase taxes or the minimum wage by telling government leaders that they would close their businesses, move to Miami and leave thousands of workers unemployed. But that in reality they would never do so due to having so many family and other personal ties in the country. As Manuel Ayal Cordon, he of the business card, told me, the power of the business sector comes from the fact that they scare the hell out of the president because he doesn't know enough. That is gold dust. I love that. Second point Roman wants to make. It's easy to be mistaken about what motivates the oligarchs. The oligarchs are not simply motivated by money and power, as I had at first naively assumed. Many are motivated by fear. Several business leaders I interviewed had children or other family members who had been kidnapped for ransom and sometimes killed during the civil war by the URNG guerrillas, who targeted the elite, of course, due to their money and power. Many of those who supported the military's extermination campaigns and paramilitary death squads did so not just to protect their assets, because of, but because of fear for their personal security or to exact revenge. Although the oligarchs did not suffer during the war on anything like the scale of Guatemala's indigenous population, understanding such personal experiences can be vital for explaining their support for the army. And his third point, oligarchs love to talk if you make them feel comfortable. Getting the oligarchs to speak openly was a challenge. Using all I knew about ethnographic and oral history interviewing techniques, I tried to be courteous rather than confrontational, a strategy that created an atmosphere which felt relaxed, unthreatening and conversational. I quickly learned that accusing them of violating human rights or explo exploiting workers made them clam up. No shit, Roman. But encouraging them to tell stories about their own lives and experiences resulted in them letting down their guard and revealing much more about themselves. Rather than being critical of them on the spot during the interviews, I found that I could hold back my critiques for when I was later writing about them and interpreting what they said, which is what I do in What the Rich Don't Tell the Poor. Stepping back, my big picture learning is that we understand far too little about the oligarchs and this stands in the way of successful strategies of change. So, this was, so remember this simple maxim, if you want to challenge the elite's power, then first understand what makes them tick. And I absolutely agree with that. All right, third uh, post of the week, excuse me, I'm coughing up, uh, I mean, um, imbibing coffee at the moment, no, just to wake myself up. Guest post by Annabelle Dulhanti, who got in touch because she wanted to write a piece about her work on dignity. And this post is called, Why do we keep forgetting about dignity? Four ways to address dignity in development programs. The idea of human dignity frequently appears as a lofty overarching goal for development agencies and programs. Dignity is fundamental to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, yet practical ways of addressing and measuring the dignity of program participants are frequently overlooked. 
For example, the preamble to the Sustainable Development Goals mentions dignity, but there is no mention of dignity in the specific goals which people are measuring. Why do we not look at dignity more closely in development programming? One reason may be that it conjures up uncomfortable images of slavery, exploitation and degradation, particularly when we think about who has dignity and who doesn't. It requires a far greater level of community participation than merely distributing aid. So why is the idea of dignity important in development policy and programming? Dignity can be thought of on two levels. First, we can consider dignity in relationships between donors and programme participants. Here we must address the legacy of colonialism and the way that aid can be used for colonial interests. But we also need to consider dignity at the individual level and question how our policies and programmes affect the dignity of the most marginalised. The experience of indignity, of shame, of humiliation and of feeling constantly unworthy is too great a consequence for us to ignore. Consider Dalit women and Dalit feminism in South Asia. Dignity is at the core of their demands for social change. Their primary experience of caste discrimination is one of humiliation. It is not enough to address the demands of these women by addressing practical needs, water, housing and education, though that must be part of it. Programmes also need to consider how they are aiding or diminishing Dalit women's possibility for advocacy, for collective action and for gaining respect in their communities. Dignity also needs to be addressed in humanitarian programmes. While the rapid pace of a disaster means that programme teams are rushing to provide the fastest response possible and key infrastructure, this is no excuse to ignore the dignity of programme participants. Simple measures can be taken, such as consulting the marginalised and affected communities about the dangers and risks in disaster situations, and by ensuring that there are robust feedback and complaints handling mechanisms. It is for this reason that CAFOD, CRS and Caritas Australia developed the Protection Mainstreaming Framework with Caritas Internationalis. CAFOD farther re, uh, further refocused their entire programmes on safety, access, dignity and inclusion. These tools and resources helped programmes to set up child-friendly spaces, to set up referral channels for survivors of abuse and to link programme participants with advocacy efforts. One way of understanding dignity is to draw from philosophy. Despite the renowned sexism and other problematic views of the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, his work on dignity still provides insights for development programming. According to Kant, a person with dig dignity is treated as an end in oneself, not as a means to an end. A person has dignity if they are seen as a full human being, not as a resource or as a tool for others. Of course, Kant's sexism meant that he did not adequately address the issue of women's dignity. But there are some excellent philosophers like Martha Nussbaum and Carol Hay, who provide brilliant critiques. Over the centuries following Kant's work, human dig dignity has increasingly been recognised only in the public sphere. For example, women are respected if they gain an income, or paid employment, or a parliamentary seat. But where is the respect for unpaid work in the private sphere? To address human dignity more holistically in a development programme, there are four key areas that are useful to address. First, does the programme encourage in inner dignity? Does the programme focus on the most vulnerable and marginalised in the community, addressing the needs and strengths of those who have experienced humiliation and indignity? This will differ depending on the country and community, but some examples include single mothers, people living with disabilities, Dalit and tribal communities, ethnic minorities, people living with HIV AIDS. Once the programme focuses on this group, it should ask, does the programme make participants feel worthy and feel proud of themselves?
Good questions. Point two, does the program promote holistic dignity beyond masculinist notions of public sphere, a public dignity, sorry. Are women and, women and other carers recognized for the care work and work at home that they do? Dignity and respect should not be found founded on earning an income or other public measures. Point three, does the program enable dignity from others? Does the program increase respect from others towards the marginalized in the community? Of course, this is not always possible, but the program should provide participants with the means to advocate for respect. It should also address attitudinal change amongst the powerful. Point four, does the program enhance equality of dignity through redressing power imbalances? Dignity should not only be for some members of a community. How are the most marginalized included in leadership roles? How is discrimination addressed at the community level? Development programs must consider these questions. Instead of ignoring this most fundamental need of human beings, let's design development programs with the dignity of participants front of mind. I really like this post. It brings back a lot, you know, some, a lot of work that was going on around the whole issue of whether well-being should be measured and included as you know, a specific aim in aid and development programs, which was going on about 10 years ago. And also Tom Vine, who's been um, actually set up an organisation working on dignity and blogged on this topic in, for me in 2018. So I think there's a little little bit of a buzz there. And um, thanks, Annabelle, for that. It was a really good post. Um, fourth post of the week was uh, what I call a bleg, a blog beg. So we're launching this um, uh, cat, uh, this influencing training course for senior um, aid people at national level um, called the Global Executive Leadership Initiative. And our bit of that initiative is on influencing. And so I, we're manically scrambling together resource lists and podcasts and videos and everything ahead of our first training session in Amman next month. And uh, I've just uh, been putting together two quick um, reading lists on public campaigning, case studies of uh, in public campaigning, and another one on how to influence developing country and donor governments. So in time-honored fashion, I've stuck up the draft on the blog, um, and I'll just read you the preamble. I'm not going to go through all the, the, the examples I've already collected, but I'm looking for more. So if you have some, some case studies, your go-to case studies, which you think exemplify either public campaigning or influencing governments and donors, please stick them in the comments. So <clears throat> I want more examples of donors. Uh, so the ones I've got um, uh, are a bit biased. So I want more examples of donors and non-NGO actors driving change. And my current draft includes far too much from Oxfam, because that's what I know, and self-citation, So, which is what I do, do too much of. Everyone says so. I'm looking for brief analytical summaries which show the combination of context analysis, stakeholder mapping, luck, and learning that go into most successful exercises in influencing. Over to you guys. And then finally, I did an extra post this week just because, I don't know about you, but I'm just finding the news almost impossible to watch. It's so grim. And I just stumbled across some um, funny uh, video collections from Monty Python, which I put up years ago. And I think I'm going to introduce Friday funnies for the moment, just because everyone needs a bit of relief. So I will put up a, a selection of Monty Python videos relevant to development. Obviously, this is a development blog. And I dug up some which are relevant to politics and the politics of development and some which are relevant to the economics of development loosely framed. So that's hopefully going to lighten people's load a little bit for the weekend. Talk to you soon. Have a good weekend.
Enjoy the spring. Bye.